Hey, how's it going? This is Tyler Murphy, and you're listening to the Lonely Painter Podcast. And, let's see, today I am going to share another another little piece of writing. Uh, I shared something last week uh, called the, the Sinful Separated Lonely Painter. And this week I want to read something to you. Uh, that's been on my mind quite a bit, and this is my attempt to put it into as uh, clear and concise of uh, words as possible. So let's jump into it. Oh, but also, by the way, I I really appreciate the handful of emails that I got from uh, last week's podcast episode. A lot of people really enjoyed it. Um, I found it helpful and I think um, and I think life-giving to a few people and um, my Canadian friend that listens and sometimes emails in he you sent me a, an email with a couple uh, additional questions and maybe this week what I'm going to share maybe starts to answer some of those but uh, we'll see this for a second my roommate Josh walked in and uh, I asked him if he wanted to be a part of this episode so he's gonna sit here he and I are gonna drink Soleil's and chat do we have any alcohol we sure do can I have that instead yeah also a Soleil Nothing is a sweeter something, and I will hold it in my All right. So, my roommate Josh is here now, and uh, he just walked in, and so I asked him if he wanted to be a part of this episode. And uh, react to what I've written here. So, so okay. So last week on the on the podcast, I included just a short bit of an interview of Paul Tillich. Uh, this guy was going around asking uh, questions to like sixteen of the of the top minds of his day back in the fifties, which I think I've showed you some of that. And I I like. Tillich's answer to the question, why do we fall so short of human fulfillment? Tillich says, in his German, (laughs) we fall away, we fall away from what we could be, namely, united in love through justice and truth, because we want to draw the whole world into ourselves and our finite reality. And this is the old doctrine of the paradise story, you will be like God. That's the temptation. So that's his answer to that question. I really like that. And then let's see, I also have a little <laughs> little quote from Slavoj Žižek. <laughs> Wisdom is pagan. That's all I'm putting in. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this talk is kind of called, uh, I think right now, I might change this at some point, but I think I'm 
I'm calling it Why I Am Opposed to Wisdom Teachers. The Apostle Paul's writings are, according to most scholars, the closest we get to the historical Jesus. Paul writes that he preaches only Christ crucified. It's as if what Jesus the man said and did while alive was of little interest to Paul. Paul never knew Jesus in the flesh like the disciples and others did. And so I can't help but wonder why he's not interested in the words and actions of this man whom Paul had come to believe was the Christ. Based upon his writings, I can't help but think that for Paul there must have been something far more profound in what the notion of Christ crucified means for humanity. That this act was far more important than Jesus' words and miracles. Again, for Paul. Possibly. Mm -hmm. At least, you know, (laughs) that's what he focuses focuses on in his writings. So why is this? Um, I hear friends that are worn down in the grind of life express how burnt out they are. The words, I kill myself and kill myself and kill myself, are suspect to me lately. For I have a sneaking suspicion. What if the point of the Bible, God's covenant with Israel, Christianity, and the idea of Christ crucified is to show us the impotence of our sacrificing and its inability to bring about the arrival of whatever ideal future we strive for and always miss. What if the point of Christianity is to break this frenetic obsession and belief in this form of destructive sacrifice? We think, if only this thing were different, if only they weren't here, if only I had this one thing, then everything would be great. I'll be happy when. Such thoughts fail to recognize the radical saving grace of Christ crucified. The reality and insistent nature of death was once felt far more than we now experience. Here hung the lips that I have kissed I know not how oft, Hamlet says while holding the skull of Yorick, his father's court jester. Old, old court jester that, you know, died. <laughs> uh, it's been a while since I've held the skull of someone I once knew. So the people of old experienced the wonders and horrors of nature and felt the anxiety of fate and death. They lived pondering the enigmatic nature of their world. Floods, droughts, diseases, heartache, and the inexplicable calamities of all kinds cause humans to ask Why? We seek meaning from such incomprehensible effects, and in this unknowing, we look around for a cause. We offload, finger point, analyze, project, scapegoat, and kill something or someone in the hopes that a better future is just around the corner. It is for us most difficult to abide God's silence. Fearing God's wrath, the people of old sacrificed goats and slaves and virgins and children desperately seeking to appease God for the hope of better days to come. Have we in 2019 come any further? Or do we throw ourselves and others against the sacrificial wall, seeing what latest diet, guru, and wisdom sticks around the longest? Do we not still point to various groups of people believing everything would be better if if they just weren't here? Or... Uh, everything would be great if they could just see things the way I see things, if they just believe how I believe. Despite the insistence upon meditation or the newest fad in self-help, the words, 
I kill myself and kill myself and kill myself. Ring on. Christ crucified breaks apart the need for scapegoats, gurus, and rules for life, and thus is radically anti-wisdom. Any prescription that overlooks this beautiful gift and sends a person on a path to on a path to self-fulfillment by way of additional striving is idolatrous and is akin to the serpent's lie and our subsequent temptation to be like God. The end. <laughs> and you wrote that. Yeah. I like that. Thanks. Do you find it weird that Paul never really talks much about Jesus. You know, that's a good point. I guess that's something I hadn't really thought of before. Even though, I guess, like, it seems so obvious when you point it out. Because, like, Paul's work is super, like, it's mostly theological. But you're right. It doesn't, it's not like Paul's writing a gospel. Like, he's not talking about the life of Jesus. But he does, like, say Christ crucified. And, like, uh, like the most common phrase he uses is in him. Mm. I can't remember what the Greek word is, but. Okay. Like, we are in him and through him. and Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think, mm. I think really, me- like, reflecting on, okay, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why does that mean so much to him is right. good. Like, I mean, not to discount the Gospels, but, right. but just, okay. <laughs> hmm. Maybe he, he saw things a little different than than the disciples did. Partially yeah. because he didn't know the man. Right. Even though I think, at least it seems from what we read in the Bible, it seems that Paul would still say he met Jesus in that visitation on the road to Damascus. Damascus. I think that he would see that as very much like a, a real encounter and not just like a hallucination. But you're right, like, he, he didn't, right. like, know Jesus in his ministry right? when he was here, before he was crucified. And so maybe that's why, like, maybe it's just that simple. It like, might, yeah. he, he wasn't there, so he can't really speak to it. Right. That might be. It's interesting that you bring up Paul as the biggest example of Jesus being a figure of anti-wisdom. Mm. I wonder, two things, I wonder if... We can find support for that in Jesus's teachings himself. And two, I wonder if Paul ever like heavily quotes uh, Jewish wisdom literature as opposed to like the prophets or history books or like I wonder if he like ever heavily quotes like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job hmm. or even like extra canon literature because i know he i know there's a couple spots where he refers to other uh other books that aren't like considered in the canon but i wonder if like if he is kind of saying jesus is an anti-wisdom figure i wonder if he ever quotes any books that would be considered wisdom Mm. would you say when you read uh, Jesus's parables mm-hmm. that you feel that you have a clear understanding of. Oops, one sec. That you have a clear understanding of really what he's getting at. You know, it's interesting. 
Because I feel like, at least as a kid, they were taught as if they had a clear understanding. Yeah. Um, so I think I used to probably say yes to that question. Like, right. well, of course, like this parable means this. Right. But, I mean, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh. I could see it being interpreted both, like, yeah, to say one thing or possibly its opposite. Right. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, or even like the parables that Jesus does seem to be clearly referring to specific characters, like uh, Jesus trying to make a point about the Pharisees in the parable of the prodigal son. That's like a pretty typical interpretation of that story, but even if you're making like clear allegorical connections, it's still really difficult to say like, oh, this parable has this one point. Yeah. Like, we're reading Aesop's fables, and there's, like, one moral to get out of this. Instead of, oh, this is a complex story, and there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And it's probably making comments on lots of things. Yeah, and maybe all through your life, you keep on coming back to it, and it keeps on having something to say to you as you... <laughs> as, like, maybe, I don't know, like, you... It, you you would interpret it one way for a mm-hmm. long time and then you suddenly, and then you, you kind of find yourself t- kind of in life leaning really far one way mm-hmm. in some respect. And then you read it again and realize, oh my gosh, I need to, actually, I need to move back to the other side. Right. Which is interesting because that was largely the point of like Jewish literature being used as meditation literature, that you were meant to like mumble it to yourself over the course of your lifetime oh, and yeah. like it would it would change for you and yeah. you would like find yourself in the text and I like that. um and Paul would have been very much aware of that yeah like he would have been doing that too um so i wonder if i wonder if Paul isn't necessarily trying to like discredit like wisdom and especially wisdom in his tradition but I wonder if he is trying to make the point that, like, Christ is the larger scope. And so if we're missing him, there's, like, no point to the wisdom anyway. Uh-huh. I wonder if that's kind of what he's trying to get at. Yeah. Largely. I just, I think it is kind of a, it's it's like, wait a minute. Like, like for us to think about, okay, like, we're trying to appease God all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's this story of God actually coming down mm-hmm. and he himself being the sacrifice. It's like, well, then what could we possibly do that's more than that? Right, yeah. Like, that's actually really crazy. Mm-hmm. But, but yet, like, that reality I don't think has set in for us. We haven't really taken that in on ourselves, like, to ourselves and and really realize that radical power that's there or radical I don't know just reality of it mm-hmm. um, along the lines mm-hmm. of like anti-wisdom stuff I'm not sure if if I'm in if I'm I need to go back and read like I, I've just read a section of fear and trembling mm-hmm. and I've heard a little bit about uh you know what Kierkegaard is is saying in that, and then as I read Hamlet, mm-hmm. I saw a connection between I think in Fear and Trembling, 
Kierkegaard is really pondering the faith of Abraham, and Abraham is visited by an angel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. In the same way, Hamlet is visited by the ghost of his father. And they're told to do something, to kill somebody, actually, in both stories. Hmm. Um, so Hamlet... Well, actually, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Hamlet's father's ghost tells him to avenge him. Hmm. But anyways, he Hamlet is like uh, resolute in his devotion to the to the task and then a little time goes by and he starts to wonder wait a minute what did i hear that right like maybe i'm crazy was that actually my father's ghost could it have been uh you know a spirit of the devil that's trying to deceive me and and bring all sorts of misfortune and calamity upon me mm-hmm. um, how can i know for sure my own experience hmm and I think that's what Kierkegaard is even wrestling with. It's like, okay, so even if God appears to you in a dream, mm-hmm. or an angel of the Lord appears to you in a dream, tells you to do something radical, like within a moment, or like not long after, you're going to start to question it. Yeah. In, any normal person would. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Abraham has <laughs> three mm-hmm. days of travel. Right. And so he, I think Kierkegaard is just like, man, what is the faith of this guy? How, like, really? You're going to kill your son? Whew. I like, you know, people who who claim to have heard God's voice now, it's like, and and that, that God told them to do certain acts. It's like, none of us believe that mm-hmm. anymore. And yet we hold up <laughs> Abraham mm-hmm. as a hero of the faith right anybody who who acts and does horrible things and they say that god told them to do it we think uh well no you're schizophrenic or something Mm -hmm. so i mean what i think is interesting about uh hamlet is hamlet goes okay well here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna set up a play i i can't trust my own self um, it might be the devil mm-hmm. that is trying to trick me, so I need more clarity on whether, whether or not, uh, like all of this actually happened—that Claudius, his uncle, actually killed his father. Mm-hmm. So he sets up this play in which the play reenacts basically the same thing, and he sets up Horatio—I think it's Horatio—to observe Claudius, the uncle. And when it comes to the point where, in the play, the, the 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 king's brother kills the king, Horatio observes Claudius, and Claudius like gets all freaked out and has to walk out of the play. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's pretty clear that to Hamlet, it's pretty clear. Oh, he this is all true. Mm-hmm. And then. It is actually true because Claudius then, in a dialogue by himself, confesses that, you know, within the play. Hmm. As he's praying to God, asking for forgiveness for what he's done. But anyways. Hmm. (laughs) But isn't that... Yeah, it's an interesting connection. Yeah. Hmm. 
the, but the faith, you know. So then that's why Kierkegaard, I think, is like, well, it's a, it really is a leap. Mm-hmm. It's a leap of faith that we have to take. It's cra- and it's crazy. It's totally anti wisdom. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's it it's it doesn't make any sense at all. Well, and it almost makes me think of uh, like when Paul refers to uh, being given a thorn in his flesh, mm. like something that's hindering him. It almost makes me wonder. I know it's so ambiguous, so there's really no precedent for this. But it makes me wonder if it could just be something so simple along the lines of him questioning everything and him doubting. Me too. Yeah, I really believe that. I think that's I think that that'd be really interesting because it would it kind of makes sense too if he is trying to like pose Jesus as an anti wisdom figure, someone who supersedes wisdom. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Well, mm. and okay, what is it that it says? Uh, Christ crucified is like it doesn't make any sense to those who seek. It's a, what is it? It doesn't make any sense to those who seek wisdom. For those who are looking for signs, it's like foolish. Foolish and, gosh, we're bad Christians. (laughs) I I don't know. I can't remember. Stumbling block. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Which I believe is an Old Testament reference, but I can't remember to what. Oh, man. Okay. Maybe Isaiah. Because I just read this somewhere recently. Okay. Okay, some... Uh, okay, so... But we preach Christ crucified. It says... Uh, unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So, uh, uh, does that mean... So the Jews are looking for signs, right? Uh-huh. Like, where and Greeks are looking for wisdom. Mm-hmm. So to me, like, hmm, signs... That's a good point. Signs would be, like, the... For Paul, it's Jesus coming to him on the road to Damascus. Right. That's a sign. Right. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, how often, like, even in my own life, are, like, you know, you kind of are looking for, like, God, just tell me what to do. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and then something happens and you're like, that's not that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen uh, Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey? Where he's yeah, like, it's been a long time. like, God, give me a sign. Like, tell me where I need to go. And, like, he, like, drives right behind this truck that, like, has all these, like, flashing red lights. It's like, don't go. Like, stop going. <laughs> and he's like, God, bro, I can't get around this truck. <laughs> and then I feel like there's another, like, sign that, like, is so obvious to the viewer, but, like, he doesn't see. I can't remember what it is. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that you're right. And, and, it's, for, and for the Greeks, it's foolishness, this. So it's... Okay, so for for those who seek wisdom, God's, like, the way God does things just doesn't make any sense. Right. Which would be, like, I think what Kierkegaard is getting at Mm -hmm. in Fear and Trembling. Hmm. Thus, a leap of faith is required. (laughs) Yeah. In, in some places, and I'm not even sure if I'm, like, thinking of any specific passage, but 
in some places, I feel like I've read Paul and felt like, how it feels like Paul's like working out his thoughts on this. Mm. Like, you can even see a little bit of that in like some places where he like says something and then like later he's like, oh, no, wait, like I meant to say this. <laughs> well, yeah, that's pretty funny. What he's, what does he say? Like, I don't believe I uh, baptized anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, except for like, <laughs> yeah. like this person, and, this person, this person. Yeah, and then they're like, oh yeah, and then like a couple other more. To, to my knowledge, that was all. <laughs> yeah. Which like kind of then goes into a little bit of a discussion on like inerrancy and like infallibility and like what are we what are we actually talking about with the Bible, uh, like, translating truth. But it, it is really interesting to read Paul and to hear him say things so redundantly and repetitiously, and then, like, to reword things in different ways that it kind of sounds like he's working out some things, too. But it also does seem, like, very Christocentric at the same time. Like, it does kind of seem like he really took his, like, visitation to heart. And in some ways, somehow, like, he's let Christ be, like, the key that's, like, unlocked all of his previous hmm. experience. Like, some of it seems like he's talking about things in hindsight. Like, kind of like we were just talking about with, like, signs. Sometimes, like, something could be right in front of us and we, like, don't realize it. Yeah. And then it's, like, not until later that we, like, look back in hindsight and we're like, Oh, that yes. thing. Yeah. That's what it was. And so it, it almost seems like Paul's doing a little bit of that, uh, like when he like had that encounter with Jesus. And like I've, I've heard like tons of people refer to Paul as like the super Jew that like <laughs> knew everything. Like because he was a he was a Pharisee, and you know, so like he had like had tons of scriptural training. So like he knew. And, like, you, you can tell if you, like, read Paul, like, with all the things he's referencing, like, he obviously knew it, like, the back of his hand. Right. And so it does kind of seem like he's, like, acting in hindsight, like, oh, yeah, like, all these things that, like, those scriptures talked about, like, it all makes sense with Christ now. Right. And so it kind of seems like he's, like, flushing some of that out. Well, it's kind of like, what do you think of, like... <sighs> He realizes that the very thing that he thinks he needs to get rid of, mm -hmm. so he's going to go kill Christians or mm -hmm. try to stop this new rising up mm -hmm. of these people who followed this man named Jesus. And then on the road, he he hears, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Mm -hmm. And so he realizes that the very thing that he is trying to, uh, that for him is the enemy is actually the point of salvation hmm. is uh, and and so like I in my argument then it would be that he realizes the impotence of doing anything to bring about a better future or to get back to yeah uh, the old way of things for him you know of like waiting around for the Christ to right. one day come like hmm. realizes that it's he can't do anything to he in in trying to kill or squelch or whatever right that isn't gonna that's not gonna work right and it's actually in the thing that you think you need to destroy that you'll find salvation 
I wonder what like the modern equivalent of a situation like that would be. It's it's kind of unique because you like have a new religious movement coming out of a thousand year religion. Well, I find that and in the middle of an empire, but to me, it's it's that for, that's the question for each of us individually. Hmm. Like, okay, so I'm on the left. Yeah, say I think that Trump is the enemy, or mm-hmm. uh, or whatever. Uh, that they're the enemy. So, mm-hmm. but actually, in getting closer to to people who affirm that position mm-hmm. and, and being around them, I realize, oh, that's not it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or for them, you know, for for somebody, yeah, for them, it might be like, oh, it's postmodern thinking and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, here's here's the thing that if we could just get rid of this, then then we'd be back to then we'd make America great again. Right. Yeah. Um. No matter what side of whatever issue that we take, it's actually can we get closer and really. Uh, well, I don't know that we necessarily need to get closer, and and I don't want to say I feel, I feel like we should be able to say, nope, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. This isn't it over here. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. What do you, do you, do you find any modern day? Uh, well, I was trying to, to think it? of one because like Paul, at least in his early days, like feels kind of bounder. Hunteri, like he's like chasing him down, and like he's like chasing down enemy number one. But then it's just like a complete reversal. I, I don't know. It'd be hard to like draw a complete modern equivalent. But I think that you're right in that. Like anytime we're like demonizing the other side, that's probably the closest. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. And again, that's what I'm loving about Story Night, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, not that this happens a lot, I mean, most of the time everybody is kind of of a similar yeah, uh, political, uh, religious leaning and thinking, but not always, and sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there is somebody else in the room that... Uh, gets up and shares or is just there listening and suddenly Mm -hmm. somebody who has maybe been really opposed to like uh i don't know lgbtq Mm -hmm. stuff is suddenly hearing the personal story and struggle of of a person i just have i just i think that that changes things Mm mm-hmm The only example I can think of is that it would almost be like if the Joker was rampaging Gotham and like all of a sudden had a change of heart and he turned into Batman and like spent the rest of his life educating people about how to become Batman. I don't know. It's (laughs) okay. That got a little out of hand, but (laughs) it's just like such a polar opposite switch that it's not even just like, 
oh, I can see things from your perspective now on this one issue. It's like everything like completely changed for Paul, I yeah. feel like. Yeah. But I've also heard people like talk about how they don't think that Paul saw this as a new religion but that he saw this as like the completion and the fulfillment of Judaism, which yeah. is what really what Jesus talks about a lot. Right. Um, and so it's, it's not like Paul like really wanted to leave anybody behind. I don't think. Right. I think that he assumed or hoped for at least that like everyone else would like see the light and would come to this believe, would come to believe that this person was the Christ. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that I just now thought of this. It's interesting that Paul seems to be the greatest fulfiller of what we interpret the Great Commission's mission to be, like going out into the world, making disciples. He seems to like fulfill that the most out of any New Testament character, and he wasn't even there for that. Right. I don't I don't remember what Jesus says to him on the road to Damascus, but I'm pretty sure it's just like Paul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't like give him instruction. Like turn from your ways and like preach my gospel. Yeah, I forget. Like, a, like it doesn't a... feel very Joseph Smithy, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like you have the answers now. Like it doesn't feel like that. But he like becomes the biggest proponent right. and like the first Christian theologian. Yeah. And he wasn't even, he wasn't even one of the OGs. <laughs> like, you're right. Like, he wasn't even there for, like, all that stuff. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of people do find Paul to be, like, a lot of scholars believe that he's the closest that we get mm. to living, breathing Jesus. Hmm. That he was writing, what, in like 60, 60 to 65 AD or sure. something. Yeah. And then a lot of people think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come... We're in afterwards. Uh, yeah, like around 90 to 100 AD. Mm-hmm. Which, so it's like not even actually written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, potentially. Right, yeah. But like... Yeah, those are just like the traditional authors. Right. Right. But but that it's written by perhaps the next generation, and mm-hmm. I, I think I think the th- the thinking on that is that it's like uh, it was common to everybody something to your teacher's name, yeah, back then, right? And 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 a lot of um, but a lot of people think I, I think I think this is the explanation I've gotten for this. Of wh- okay, why did it take so long to actually get mm-hmm. a written testimony of? the life of Jesus mm-hmm. and and the the answer I, th- I think that I've heard on this is that uh, everybody thought that the second coming was in like, yeah right yeah. there and and then when <laughs> like even in Paul's letters to churches people start dying and it's and people start asking questions like so then what does mm-hmm. like what what happens to that guy who who died? Like, because mm-hmm. we all thought he, we all thought the second coming was happening. What 
So then Paul starts writing about kind of what happens after, I think after, I think he starts writing more about what happens after death. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Romans, I don't know that, I don't know that he spends much time on that kind of thing. He's yeah. more talking about what does Christ crucified mean mm-hmm. in relation to uh, his, in relation to Judaism, I guess, yeah. and the rest of the world. Um, but that that's fascinating to think about like at first that was really I remember in college that being really um, upsetting to me Mm. to hear that like and like no that can't like really no that can't be true Mm -hmm. that it was that way like and kind of was like a pulling a foundational Jenga block out but then but then it actually like it kind of makes sense that it would be that way that that 100 years or 100 AD people start to quit, start to go wait a minute we thought the second coming was happening was going to come mm-hmm. who who was this Jesus guy like yeah what? and we need that we need that story mm-hmm. to keep us going here yeah Yeah, I feel like I've heard lots of people reference that Paul's letters were circulating at least a good 20, 30 years before some of the first Gospels. And so that would have been a lot of people's like first introduction to at least written introduction. I'm sure like lots of stories are floating around about Jesus. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Verbally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's interesting. And it, and so to me, if if those stories were floating around about Jesus, mm-hmm. like why isn't Paul picking up on any of those and then putting hmm. any of those things into his writings? Yeah, I would think that it's because maybe he's quest- He's like, mm, I don't trust your remembering of all oh, this. Oh yeah, you know. But that's interesting. The thing that matters. Is that God came in the flesh, right, and died, right? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, he talks about things on a, on a much broader scale. Okay. I feel like, and so many of the things he, anything he does, like interpret or reinterpret, is like something in the Old Testament. Like some things he like quotes and rewords. And it seems like he's doing that in light of Jesus. But you're right. He doesn't like reference any like Jesus's life. He he mm-hmm. quote he quotes stuff from from the Old Testament and or from mm-hmm. <laughs> not the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he would quote stuff from Jewish scripture, and a couple places he like changes it up a little bit. And I think huh. that part of that is probably the like Hebrew to Greek and then the English translation. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a little bit, there's always going to be like a little bit of variety in yeah. wording, but some things he just like, uh, like one of the things he references is that like the rock, there's this like really obscure reference. I can't remember which book it's in, 
But he says, like, the rock that followed the Israelites through the wilderness was Christ the whole time. And if you just, like, read quickly, you're like, oh, okay, cool, the rock was Christ. Like, Christ was somehow, like, with Israel. But if you, like, really look at it, you're like, wait a minute. The rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness? What is that? And it's a reference to um, the, a tradition in the, in the Mishnah that tried to reconcile the fact that at the beginning of the wilderness, uh, Moses strikes a rock and there's water. Or it speaks to the rock and there's water. Yeah, yeah, he strikes the rock and there's water. And then at the end, he's told to speak to the rock and give water, but he, like, disobeys and strikes the rock. So to, like, reconcile the fact that, like, there's this rock giving water at the beginning and at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, and there's nothing that explains how they got water during that time anyway, they developed this tradition that that rock traveled with them and produced water the whole time. And so Paul makes a reference to tradition, but then on top of that, like, reinterprets that tradition and just superimposes Christ on top of it. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple places where he does something like that and, like, proposes a new interpretation and says, like, no, this is, like, what it was referring to the whole time. Or he, like, changes it slightly okay. to refer to Christ. Yeah. Which is interesting. I think that's, it's stuff like that that makes me get the sense that Paul is like working out some of this as he's doing it. Sure, yeah. Not that he's like making it up, but he's, he's still processing like the implications, I think. Well, so yes, maybe, maybe not. What I like about this in our conversation is that that's what we've been doing. I was Mm -hmm. just kind of like laughing at myself about like, Mm. I'm just an artist. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not studied in this stuff, like, tech, or, you know, I've, I haven't studied it in college or anything. And I'm, these are just, this might be utter <laughs> stupidity <laughs> to somebody who really knows what they're talking about. True. But the only way, though, that we're, that we are going to get further along is by just jumping in and trying. True. And, and having these conversations. And that's, kind of what's beautiful about it yeah i agree so we all start somewhere yeah some of us start start off killing christians and then turn out to be the biggest theologian so i mean it's it's only up from here hopefully yep you gotta start somewhere (laughs) all right man uh anything else you want to add here at the end i don't think so good talk yeah, I feel pretty good about that conversation. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I have uh, another thing that I think I want to write sometime in the next week or two or month, maybe, that I'll share on here about nothingness and uh, the song by Foy Vance called The Joy of Nothing. And uh, So go look that up. It's a great song. And I'll talk to you next week. Be good to yourselves. Okay, so last week on the podcast, I included a little bit from an interview with Paul Tillich. This week, here's a little bit of an interview with Slavoj Zizek entitled, I'm Generally Opposed to Wisdom. If you type that in on YouTube, 
I think you should be able to find it. Um, this is this could be hard for you to hear. Um, and Zizek himself is hard to understand, but I really enjoy his ideas for the most part. Sometimes I'm I have no clue what what he is saying or what he's getting at. But uh, I think this one's pretty clear. Also, if you're interested in in more from this guy, Slavoj Žižek, if you if you look up uh, Pervert's Guide to Ideology, I th I think that's worth watching. I've watched that several times, and it's uh, pretty interesting. Um, it's it's changed the way I think about. Quite a few things. Most of it is impenetrable to me, but that I don't know. That's what I'm interested in these days. Is what what are the things that seem like? No, there's more here, even if I'm not quite capable of comprehending it. There is a point of so-called Christian, not only Christian wisdom to which I'm totally opposed. I'm generally opposed to wisdom. I think wisdom is the most disgusting thing you can imagine. Wisdom is the most conformist thing you can imagine. Wisdom is this, you know, whatever you do, a wise man will come and justify it, you know. Like, you do something risky and you succeed. There will, come, there will be a wise man who will come and say something like, I don't know, we in Slovene, we have a proverb, maybe you have a similar one, only those who risk profit and so on and so on. Let's say you do the same thing but fail. A wise man will come and he will say something like, in Slovene we had a vulgar saying, which says you cannot urinate against the wind or something like that. You know, this is wisdom. Whatever you do, a wise guy will come and... Uh, and wisdom, you know, but, I mean, but it's so interesting that a, um, a philosopher should be against wisdom. We all are. I mean, your Kierkegaard knew this. Kierkegaard was anti-wise man par excellence. Wisdom is pagan. Liquid, okay, I'm not going to my Stalinist stuff. But what I want to do, once I made a mental experiment, if you don't believe me. Uh, let's take, I will say something. I will say, I don't know how to say it, I'm too ironic with all this pathos, you know. Why are we, uh, why are we running after these uh, miserable earthly pleasures? Think about eternity. The only satisfaction is eternity. If I were to say it with proper pathos, it would sound a deep thing to say. Okay. It, it sounded... It now, did. let's yeah. say the opposite. Why run after the specter of eternity? Carpe diem. Grasp what you have here. It sounds wise. Now I will say the third option. Why be caught in a contrast between eternity and temporary existence? The true wisdom is to see eternity in fleeting temporary pleasures. It is wise. Then I say the fourth variation. We are forever condemned between the two. A wise man accept this. You know, whatever I say, that's my point. You can sell it as a wisdom. This is a wisdom. And if from no one else, from your Kierkegaard, you can learn this, that whatever Jesus Christ was, he wasn't a wise guy. So 
I've reflected a lot on, in that video, Slavoj Žižek says, wisdom is pagan. But then he doesn't really, he doesn't really finish that thought. That's what I've been reflecting on a lot. What if that, why did he say that? Is there any truth to that? What does pagan mean? What does he mean by wisdom? That's what the writing at the beginning of this, uh, this podcast, that's what that is trying to wrestle with. Um, a friend emailed recently um, something, and, and he, he put at the beginning, maybe I shared this last time, I can't remember. Uh, he said, uh, a wise man, he, he included a proverb, and it said, a foolish man, a fool, uh, what is it? I'm just going to look it up real quick. So he included this proverb that says, a fool vents all his anger, but a wise man holds it back. Um, and so I read that, and then I thought of this video that I'd heard by, or watched of Slavoj Žižek, and I thought, okay, so then let's let's look at the opposite. Let's, let's say the opposite, which would be a wise man vents all his anger but a fool holds it back. I have to say both seem pretty true, and it and it kind of depends which way you want to look at it. And that was that was one thing that my friend and I kind of talked about. My friend responded back after I'd sent him that video of Slavoj, and uh, and had switched the saying a little bit, and he said, "Yep." It seems to me that wisdom is, if you're about to fall off one side of a bridge, it's maybe moving a little bit to the left. And it's also, uh, if you're about to fall off the other side of the bridge, it's moving a little bit to the right. Um, yeah, that's, that seems true. I'm wondering if Christ crucified blows up the whole bridge altogether. Uh, I'll leave you with that.